Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we're back with number 37 on the AFI Top 100 list of films. And that film is 1946's The Best Years of Our Lives. The Best Years of Our Lives. Long title, long film. Long title, long film. Ethan, had you seen this one before? No. (laughs) Definitely not. I hadn't either, but perhaps we should just jump right on in with a plot synopsis of it. Let's do it. The best years of our lives is the story of a group of Americans trying to make sense of post-war America. The film begins with a trio of soldiers, Fred, Homer, and Al, making their way back to Boone City. The three men find their ways home, but discover that fitting in is more difficult than they had imagined. Al, a wealthy banker, has trouble readjusting to family life. Fred, who was previously a soda jerk, finds that returning to underpaid menial work is not very easy, particularly when his wife becomes dissatisfied with his lower rate of income as compared to the army. Homer has trouble learning to cope with his prosthetic hands and what it means to be a civilian visually marked by the war. Al's daughter Peggy and Fred have a mutual affection for each other, but are unable to act upon it due to Fred's wife, who he grows increasingly apart from. Al tries for a better job than his pre-war employment, but is unable to land anything and returns to his poor-paying soda-jerk job. Homer pushes his fiancée Wilma away, fearing that she will be burdened by him and his disability. Al is disillusioned with the bank's insistence on calculated safe loans for veterans. Eventually, Fred and Peggy share a kiss after lunch, and Peggy invites Fred and his wife on a double date to discourage their feelings for each other, though their feelings about each other are only confirmed. Peggy announces to her parents that she intends to break Fred's marriage, and Al meets Fred to tell him to back off from Peggy, which he does. Later, Homer visits Fred at work, but is antagonized by a rude customer, and Fred punches the man, losing his job. Fred then encourages Homer to marry his fiancée and returns home. He shortly after discovers his wife with another man and accepts her demands for a divorce. Homer learns that Wilma's parents expect her to leave home to forget about him. The two share an intimate moment where Homer shows Wilma the extent of his disability and she professes her continued love for him. Fred attempts to leave Boone City, but obtains a job after a serendipitous meeting with a junker in the dead plain yard building houses from scrap metal. At Homer's wedding, Fred stands up as best man, and after the ceremony, he and Peggy profess their love for each other and plan for the future despite the possible hardships and share a kiss as the film ends. There's a lot of plot in this film, obviously. But I think a lot of it if not all of it, is necessary to getting us to that comedic moment at the end, right? Comedy in the sense of it's like a Shakespearean comedy. It ends with a wedding. It's really like 1.5 weddings, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's the promise of the next wedding. Yeah, so this is very similar to things we have seen in other films, that moment that is. I think the film itself is actually a little bit different than we are used to with AFI and I think that difference has made it somewhat difficult for me to locate 
a pivotal scene because there's a lot of little snippets here and there that I think are very useful. And I think they aggregate into the overall theme of this film. But it wasn't until that plain graveyard scene that you mentioned in your synopsis that I say, ah, this is our pivotal scene. Mm-hmm. So I want to say a little bit about the setup before I play the audio because you have Fred at the airfield and he's walking around among the playing graveyards and he sees a B-17, which he was in. He was the bomb dropper. There's probably a better name for that. Bomb dropper. Bombardier. Yeah, sure. He wasn't flying the plane, but he gets up in the cockpit to uh, take a look around and it's old, decrepit. It's falling apart. And he's sitting there. You've got dramatic music playing. You see him sitting in the cockpit. There's no propellers on any of the four engines and it's grounded. And you just know, like, this is kind of Fred at his worst. You know, he's lost his wife, who he didn't really seem to care for that much anyway. He's also lost Peggy and he's also lost his job. So he really is kind of at the end of his rope. And then our scene starts. So we'll play the audio and then we'll talk about it afterward. Okay. What are you doing in that airplane? I used to work in one of those. Reviving old memories, huh? Yeah, or maybe getting some of them out of my system. Well, you can take your last look at these crates. We're breaking them up. Yeah, I know. You're the junk man. You get everything sooner or later. This is no junk. We're using this material for building prefabricated houses. You don't need any help, do you? Out of a job? That's it. I see. One of the fallen angels of the Air Force. Well, pardon me if I show no sympathy. While you glamour boys were up in the wild blue yonder, I was down in a tank. Listen, chum, sometime I'll be glad to hear the story of your war experiences. What I ask you for is a job. You got one? Do you know anything about building? No, but there's one thing I do know. I know how to learn, same as I learned that job up there. Hey, Gus. Yes? See if you think this guy can be of any use to us. Thanks. What I really like about this scene is that it's heavily thematized. You know how much I love theme. But it's not in your face necessarily. No character makes the connection overtly. It's technically still subtext, right? Mm-hmm. They are going to junk these planes. And Fred makes this commentary like, well, you're the junk man. Everything goes to you eventually, right? Sort of this like existential nihilist response. Yeah. But then the junk man says, no, we're not junking these. We are going to use these for parts to make houses. And that turns Fred around. And I think the reason why this is so important is it illustrates that there's this direct comparison between him as the plane and then him in life, right? They're both in the plane Mm -hmm. graveyard. They're both out of service. They can't readjust or reintegrate easily. Mm -hmm. But if you reappropriate it, use it in a particular way, then it has value. And so they're going to make houses, right? Create home, which is 1946 America, domesticity and successful home life. Yep. That is like the dream. Yep. That's exactly what I was going to say. You have a, he's essentially a tool of war who becomes repurposed into domesticity, which is really all these men are looking for in this film regardless. 
Yeah, and I think some of them have easier jobs than others, right? The three main characters, Al is basically dealing with apparently an alcohol problem and not being able to keep up with the fact that his kids have grown up and sort of moved past him. I think that very early scene with his son, Rob, and he's trying to give him all these war souvenirs, like a samurai sword and a Japanese imperial flag. And the son's like, well, don't you know all these things about radioactivity and nuclear effects? And Al at some point says sarcastically, which is not picked up by Rob, like, you know, I should have stayed here where everything was happening as opposed to being in Iwo Jima. It seemed like they were all on or around Iwo Jima at the time. Right. So there's that. And of course, Homer has the issue with just reintegrating and getting people not to feel sorry for him. Right. Because of his hands. Which we should mention that actor actually has lost his hands. Yeah, he was a real World War II vet. Although it, it, he lost his hands in, in reality, I think in a in some sort of a training exercise, not actually in combat. Trying to transport TNT, I think, and then went off. Not a good way to listen. Losing your, regardless of how you lost your hands, it sucks to lose your hands. Yeah, but I think just how adroit he was with those metal prosthetics. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, and you think like, well, this has to be a real thing. It's not just an actor playing around with these. This is someone who actually has lived this condition. Right. He also was the first uh, winner of an Academy Award to sell his Academy Award at auction. Oh, nice. <laughs> which the Academy was not happy about. You might imagine so. And then finally, Fred seems to be experiencing what we typically associate with like the true reintegration issue. He has to go back to his old job, his old life, and nothing's quite clicking, and he can't really get through it. And even when his wife's lover is up in their apartment and he shows back up, he's like, oh, you're another military man. He's like, you just got to take it in stride. And Fred's like, yeah, I hear it's just that easy. You know, there's something ineffable about the difficulty of reintegrating. Well, and I think that his his challenge is also one of sort of returning to the mundane, right? Like he goes from being sort of a big shot, you know, uh, bombardier to, you know, someone who in reality in terms of like day-to-day life doesn't have you know skills in the same way that that other people might right like he has that job interview um and like he can learn to do things he obviously learned to drop bombs and be very good at that but he just doesn't seem to have the words or the ability to transform his experience into something that works in the in the day-to-day civilian world right so i think it's both a combination of his desire for something more and knowing that he's worth more than you know standing at a a counter and and this trouble of like translating his skills uh in a way that he can sell right to these other people yeah you're absolutely right i'm so glad you brought this up that scene with the manager at his old job who he didn't know the manager. He knew the guy who sold his drugstore to this major corporation, which is part and parcel to what this film is trying to talk about with a changing America and changing mm-hmm. times. But on top of that, so he's sitting down at the interview and the manager is saying, well, you're an officer. Haven't you led people? He's like, Nope, I just put bombs on the target and I did that really well. And you're right. He doesn't have the words for it. I think there is something ineffable about it. He thinks his 
experience is in some way exceptional and that's been reinforced by the public because they don't understand his experience there. They're also maybe not willing to understand it. They're not willing to hear out what that's like. And it's not until that plain graveyard scene does Fred realize how to translate his experience. He says, look, I didn't know how to drop bombs, but I learned that there. I could learn anything. And so right. it's Fred's failure to apply his experience, which I think is magnified in just the scene or maybe two scenes prior, where his dad is reading his metal citations. And yeah. they talk about heroism and performing under pressure with no regard for yourself, thinking about effectively the team. And you think these are all really important skills, even if you're not being blown up in the sky. But right. it's something that he just can't see how to make that connection yet. Yeah. And I think really that's kind of my thesis for this film is that the film wants to show a difficulty of reintegration, but it yeah. also wants to posit the possibility of resolution. This is an American film. We have to have some kind of comedic ending, right? We have 1.5 marriages, I'll say again. Right, 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 right. And so it shows a possibility forward. All three of our characters actually let's say, are working through, to use the actual terminology of trauma theory, they're working through their past and they're making something of their present. I think maybe Al seems to have a drinking problem still. It's not really clear at the end, but it's at least hey, not... Al just likes to have a good time, Matt. <laughs> well, in any case, it's just not problematized at the end of the film, I think. No, I mean, I think that's exactly what this film is trying to do, right? And, and, and I think what, what, is, what is particularly novel about this film is that it, so close to the conclusion of the war does it present a view of the soldiers that is more realistic than conquering heroes, good, good old boys coming home. And perhaps what's even more interesting is the portrayal of the women in this film. And, and their relationships with the men. Because I think that there's a very strong argument to be made that the main characters of this film are are not necessarily the men, but the, but the women that surround them, right? Particularly Peggy and uh, her mother. Yeah, I think the women in this film are all extraordinary with the exception of, is it Marie that is Fred's now ex-wife? Yeah, I think that's her name. And I think there may even be a way to read Marie as sympathetic. She, the, the film does not want you to think of her as a sympathetic character. Um, but I think that we probably could if we really tried. Because for what it's worth, she does, you know, have a bit of a... There is a promise, I guess, between her and Fred that he's going to provide. And then he doesn't, right? I mean, he, he makes her quit her job, uh, you know, her life changes drastically. Uh, and so, you know, perhaps her way out is not the most noble, but she gets out. She wants something, and when she doesn't get it, she changes her situation. You're right that the film definitely doesn't want us to find her as sympathetic now but i think we have good reasons for also not finding her sympathetic because she is frivolous and yeah. seems to be in a lot of ways infantile she did have a job you're right and it wasn't right of fred to make her quit that job except for that job is her at a nightclub a nightclub in 1946 is probably not going to be the on the most up and up 
No. And we get some insinuation of that when she is quitting over the phone saying, oh, you can find another blonde with nice legs. And there's just this implication that it's not like she's just a bartender or something. And we're also sort of given the indication when they go to all these nightclubs throughout the time they're just spending through all of Fred's money is that she's got these liaisons around, right? So she's been apparently sleeping around while Fred is gone. She accuses him of doing the same and he doesn't respond to that. And I think you can read that two ways. I think you can say, well, why would he dignify that response or no, he's guilty of it too. So I don't really know. And the fact that he is falling in love with Peggy while he's still married, maybe some indication to that as well. So though she's not a sympathetic character, I don't think she's necessarily wrong in what she does either. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and I really do think that there is a way in which we see Peggy and uh, her mother, I don't remember the mom's name, how they are the ones that really do a lot of the work of reintegration, right? They're the ones helping these men. They're the ones, uh, you know, supporting them, following them around. They were, you know, taking care of things while the men were gone. And so, I, yeah, I think there is a way to that, that this film shows us that the women, you know, definitely didn't do nothing while the men were gone. And they certainly didn't do nothing when the men came back. Uh, which I found uh, kind of refreshing for, uh, you know, a late, mid to late 40s film. Everything you said is also true for Wilma, right? Which is Yes, Wilma, yes, yes, yes. She is practically a saint in how patient and kind she is. Not that she, oh, she has to deal with this guy with no hands. Like, that's not even an issue. It's the fact that he thinks he's going to try to do this alone and she's trying to help and he's refusing this help, that she's willing to be patient with that. And just hang in there and say, look, my parents are also trying to get me to forget about you now, but I'm still still here. just want to let you know where it stands. She's just such a great woman. Yeah. Just the way Peggy and her mother are as well. I got them confused very early in the film, and I thought they were trading names when Fred was drunk in order to confuse him. And so I thought it was like this extended joke because... On their actress photos on IMDb, you really can't tell a the difference. They're only 13 years apart. So it's right. it's not the case that she would have been her biological mother in actual yeah. fact, right? They've done some Hollywood aging down where all the male actors mm-hmm. are way older than the female actors. Right. And all the course. female actors are still like under 30 or something. Yeah. So that was a little confusing. But, and that, so I think that's part of the difficulty in <laughs> remembering who was who for the first like 20 minutes of that film. But, I agree. I think the women can be seen as the major protagonists. The men's story is more or less over, right? They have gone to war. Their exceptionalism is finished, and the women step up to aid in the reintegration. So I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, I think there's there's a there seems to be a, a way in which this story is a, is about exactly that. The the men come back and they are no they are mere men. That is all they are. They're not the ten foot tall heroes of the newsreels. You know they're not uh, you know magic captains of industry or anything like that. When they return, they're just men. Um, and I think that the women recognize that and are there to. I mean, to facilitate this process. Without the women there, the men would would not reintegrate. 
at all, I think. I mean, I think that's that's pretty obvious. I also think it's incredible, and I should know this logically, but this film is 1946. The war is over, but you're already getting like Red Scare sentiment. You're already getting people rejecting the troops, saying, oh, you guys are a bunch of dupes fighting for the Russians and the British when we should have just let that problem sort itself out, which is like, wait, let Hitler conquer all of Europe, and then how does that solve (laughs) itself? So that's that guy that Fred punches at the soda jerk because he's saying all these, what would we label as maybe conspiracy theories now, but certainly existed then. There were so many people who thought, oh, we beat Germany, let's just continue on and take out Russia while we're here. So that stuff was there, but it's just incredible to see it in film in 1946, so short after the end of the war. Yeah. Ethan, what do you say we turn to our three questions? Let's do it. I have reordered these a little bit. Oh. We actually did this last time sort of serendipitously, and so I think we'll continue it because it seems to make more sense now. So the first question is, what do we owe to this film? I don't know. What do we owe to this film? I mean, I think that the honest portrayal of soldiers as not larger than life characters, as not one dimensional heroes, but as uh, flawed and and perhaps broken in some ways men, I, I think that we can see echoes of that in lots of other things we've looked at in this uh, project that we've begun, embarked upon, but, you know, in our other war films pretty much uh saving private ryan it it comes to mind yeah i agree with you i think in addition to the idea of the honest betrayal this honesty is ambivalence it's not just that they are untarnished heroes and it's not just that they're utterly devastated broken men they are simultaneously these heroic figures with problems they cannot deal with the small things and yet they have these citations for bravery and courage under fire it's complicated, right? In a word. Yeah. And I think we see this to a greater degree. So this is maybe less ambivalent than what I had said about this film. But I think the film I'm about to mention owes a lot to this one. And this was one of the ones you're talking about on our list. I think The Deer Hunter owes a lot to yeah. this film. Yeah, I think so. That's, you know, a reintegration story. You know, we saw yeah. that very closely with Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is a little more extreme and just yeah. uses the failure of reintegration as the jumping off point. But I think Deer Hunter is a little more honest too. It's not necessarily an exceptional issue in coming back home and reintegrating, but it's still a monumental obstacle for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Ethan, does this film hold up? You know, surprisingly, I think it does. It, the first 20 minutes were a little iffy for me. Uh, because I thought, oh my God, is this going to be, you know, jingoistic, yay America, you know, sort of uh, trite or uh, saccharine portrayal of the post-war thing. Um, but but it ends up not really being that. It it ends up being pretty compelling and and, and pretty interesting with characters that have layers that are not one-dimensional. Yeah, I th- I think I think it's it holds up surprisingly better than I expected. The term I was thinking of is surprisingly nuanced. Yeah, I think this could have been very much tilted one way or the other into tragedy or absolute reverence, but the film is able to walk up to those lines and maybe toe that line, but that still back off of it. And I think you still can 
accuse this film of sentimentality in a couple of places. Yeah, it's extremely sentimental, but I think that's part of its genre. Yeah, and I, and I like the sentimental, right? There's nothing wrong with the sentimental. No, yeah, there's definitely nothing wrong with the sentimental. For a little bit, I thought there are maybe times that I could see it becoming melodramatic, but I think it actually yeah. steps away from that more than the sentimentality. Yeah, it, it does get dangerously close to melodrama um, in, in places, but yeah, I think it, it does ultimately balance itself out. I think it looks great. For 1946, yeah. we always talk about how black and white seems to hold up better than the recently yeah. colorized films. I think this one's definitely a shining example of that because there's very rarely a case that you see just sort of a wacky shot or a quick cut or anything like that. It's all very well done and measured. And I think the cinematography of the playing graveyard scene is actually really well done. Yeah, I think it is carefully staged. I would put it that way. It is very carefully staged. So I think in most ways this film holds up, even with, as you mentioned earlier in the episode, the mid to late 1940s feminism or lack thereof, I think this film falls far less guilty of that stuff than many other films we've seen even later in the decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, thinking of like, oh, someone wants to watch the AFI and see these old films, you're going to feel a little... I don't know, gun shy about doing so. I think this film is kind of an example you can point to and say, no, watch this. This is from, what, 60, 70 years ago, something like that? Gosh. But it still feels (laughs) very modern and looks very good. Yeah, definitely. So, Ethan, with all that in mind, do we care about this film? You know, I, I think just for its very early portrayal of of soldiers as something that is more honest i think yes i i think so and and the fact that it comes out so close to the the, the finish of the war that you know it i mean we're talking like within you know a year year and a half or whatever right we end in 45 and this is 46 this is like the next year so yeah i think that is that is important in and of itself And, you know, we should mention I'm certainly biased whenever we're talking about veterans and their issues reintegrating or not reintegrating. Of course, Mm -hmm. that's something I care about. In theory, I think there are examples where it's done very poorly. I can think of a couple modern ones, which we don't necessarily need to name here. But Mm -hmm. I, I do think this one does a good job. And I think it is sufficiently nuanced to where it's not oversimplifying the problem. I think the ending can be seen as that as well. But I choose to see it in its sentimentality and saying, look, these are obstacles, but they can be overcome. So, yeah, I care about this. I think it's a good film. I think it's a balanced film. I think it's a nuanced film. And it's something I happen to care about as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's going to do it for us, Ethan. Sounds good, Matt. You know, speaking of war, we're going to be back on the AFI in two weeks with number 36 on the list. And that's The Bridge of the River Kwai. The Bridge of the River Kwai. So we're going to be about a decade into the future. I think the subject matter goes forward alongside that. But until that time, I've been Matt Mazzell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. I'm dreaming of bombs and spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Mazzell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Mazzell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. 
Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.